gift. And so we're going to open up 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them up. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 49. And you may be wondering, why are we starting near the end of 1 Corinthians 15? You might remember that the last sermon that I preached before going on sabbatical was the first part of 1 Corinthians 15. And so we skipped 14. We went back and dealt with 14 the last couple of weeks. Now we're in 15 and we'll finish 15 this week and next week. And then we'll finish the book in 16 in a couple of weeks. And so uh, it's a bit out of order, but for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about and thinking about the resurrection. I want to tell you this morning that there is a certain resurrection, even for doubting people. And that's the, the thrust of the passage this morning. Let's read God's word. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Oh, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or even some other grain. But God gives it a body as he is chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are even heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of, another, of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for even stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, the grass withers and the flowers fade, and the word of our God endures forever. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for it is true, and it flows from the God of truth. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you are out, Lord, to build us up and to correct us, encourage us. And uh, the resurrection is a big deal. It's a big deal to hurting, doubting people. And I pray, Lord, that our certain resurrection and the good news uh, of our union with Jesus and all the benefits that come from that, Lord, would uh, change us, that it would anchor us and move us to worship you and rest in you more. Lord, I pray for those who are still of the dust, who have not bowed the knee to Jesus. I pray, Lord, that they will see the implications of being united with their first Adam. And I pray, Lord, that something beautiful about Jesus or yourself would captivate their hearts and that they would also uh, bow the knee to Jesus and be able to inherit 
all of the promises that are yes and amen in him this morning. I pray this for your glory uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever uh, listened to the bad advice of a friend or done something really foolish? And after you reflect on it for a season, it just didn't make much sense. It went against everything that you had been taught. And yes, it's a form of peer pressure. And yes, it happens to the youngest of us and even the oldest of us in the room. I can remember as a kid, I was with my mom at a at a hair salon and I, don't, I do not remember. I just remember this story because of what happened to me in that hair salon. But I was there and uh, she was getting her hair done and I had to go with her. I think she might have picked me up from soccer or something after school. And uh, there was another kid in there. He was about my age. And, and so, you know what kids do, like two kids get around in a hair salon. They're going to play in a hair salon. And so me and this other kid that I just met, we started to get into the salon chairs and kind of spin around. And the, the, the woman who I guess ran the shop uh, said, hey, y'all can play. Just keep playing. Uh, just whatever you do, don't don't put your hands on the uh, oven where the hot curlers go into. And I don't know why she told us that, because the moment she told us that, you know what two little boys did like right there. It's like, oh, OK. She told us it's hot and she told us not to touch it. And so we began to go back and forth. It's not that hot. And I said, you touch it. He says, no, you touch it. And I said, you scared. He said, no, you're scared. I said, I'm not scared. And, and then I, I did what I should not have done. Uh, and it's the old school, old school curlers where it's like this little oven and the oven get kind of hot and you stick like the hot curlers in there. And I reached over there and I put my hand on the oven that the curling iron went in. And I, I, I mean, like for a split second, I could see like my, my, my handprint on top of the oven kind of melting. And somewhere at the intersection of my foolishness and this guy's bad advice, I learned a hard lesson. I ignored truth. This woman who runs the shop had just told us that that's hot. That'll, that'll harm you. And at this intersection of my folly and bad advice, I hurt myself when I got a second degree burn on my hand that evening. And you may be wondering, what does that have to do with this passage? Actually, a lot. You might remember that Paul went and planted this church. He spent 18 months First, uh, in Acts chapter 18 in Corinth, and uh, he left to go plant other churches. But look at how chapter 15 begins. He says, look, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached. Right. And so what is the gospel that Paul preached? He says it in chapter 15, verse three, for I delivered unto you that which was of first importance that I received one that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried on the third day, he rose according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to over 500 people in this new glorified body. And so if you were to ask Paul, Paul, what's your gospel? What he's, he's going to say, Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and died for your sins. He's going to say that, but he's going to say so much more. 
He's going to say that this was in accordance with God's word. He's going to say that he was at the right hand of God and he took on flesh. He's going to say that he died a real death and he went into the ground and that he really came. That that body was raised in power and this glorified body of Jesus, actually, he went and hung out with people and appeared, appeared to people for, for, for over 500 of them. Like that's Paul's gospel. And so what's happening in chapter 15 is some were denying truth, truth that Paul just told them. He says, I told you my gospel. And now some of you are denying the resurrection and the resurrection is a gospel issue. And so what Paul is really saying is like, look, whoever this is, whoever's influence you're coming from under, I want you free. Now, how do we know that this is at the intersection of their sin and bad advice on the outside? You see it right in our passage. Look at verse 33, right above our passage. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So you see what he's saying? Somebody has gotten inside of you and has gotten to you and they're actually causing you to disbelieve what I spent 18 months telling you about. And notice what he says. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. I think what Paul is saying is, look, y'all are acting like some teenagers who have lost your minds. You're disregarding everything you've been taught because some fool who does not love you and is not out for your best interest has crept in. And now you are listening to them. And Paul spends chapter 15 saying, okay, if you deny the resurrection, let me just show you that that's a nightmare. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus has not been raised from the dead. And if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then you're dead in your sins right now. And if you're still dead in your sins, then God is lying. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then we are the most pitied people on the earth because our hope is only in this life. And I don't know about y'all, but if this life is all there is, you got to show me something different and better, Lord. And so after Paul deals with the denial in the first part of 15, it feels like he's shifting to doubts. And questions. And he says, but in fact, Christ has been proclaimed as raised from the dead. In fact, Jesus appeared. In fact, his resurrection was the first fruit, which means your resurrection is coming. And that's a fact. And so it feels like Paul's done with the deniers. And now he's moving towards these questions. And I think the questions and answering the questions and the certainty of our resurrection is what he wants us to think about this morning. I want to deal with the questions they had about resurrection, some answers Paul gives to their questions about the resurrection, but Paul does end with some certainty. Whether you believe it or not, it's happening. It's certain. It's fixed. And that's what I want us to think about. First point is some questions they had about the resurrection. Now, where am I getting this from? I'm getting this from basically how the passage begins. But someone will ask, and, and so scholars are divided, that some scholars think that what you have is a progression, that you have some in the church who denied the resurrection, and then you had a different camp 
I don't deny it, but man, I'm not really sure about all of this, right? And so Paul has addressed the deniers, and now he's addressing some common questions people were asking. Some scholars say that there's a progression. Others say that, that Paul is anticipating that people might want some answers, and so he is inserting the questions in the dialogue. I don't think it matters. I think at the, what he's getting at is that there are questions, and I think there are two questions that, that some are asking. How are the dead raised? How will this happen? And I think that's a question of source, right? Who's going to do that? And then the, the second is, is, is a question of style. What type of body? Okay, suppose that we, we get you and you say the resurrection is real and we're there. Now tell us the, the kind or the type or the style of body that we have. And I think that's what Paul is dealing with, these questions. And I just want to linger there for a minute. Have you ever had questions about the resurrection? I have. And I think there, there, there are some safe questions that we ask, and, and there are probably some more, I won't call them dangerous, as in um, they're harmful to ask. But I think in our, in our spaces, we, we can kind of think in these two categories. And, and here are some safe questions that we can ask about the resurrection. Man, I, I, I wonder, right? Like, what happens to people who are incinerated? Or what, what about people brought over here on slave ships who jumped in the ocean and probably got eaten by animals? Like, what's going to happen to their bodies? And, and, and what age will we be in heaven? And will I get to go and see my, my loved ones that, that, that I knew on the earth, right? And what kind of body will we have? I mean, Jesus phased through buildings in his resurrected body. He just kind of shows up in a room and the door is clearly locked. Like they, these are questions. And, and then there are some of the, the, the other questions, right? Lord, why, why is resurrection really a part of this anyway? Why, why, why couldn't we be like Elijah? And just serve you and just be taken up in a chariot with our best friend watching and cheering us on, right? Why couldn't we be like Enoch? He walked so closely with the Lord and it just says in one day he was not. Well, where is he? He's gone with the Lord. Well, Lord, if you can take these two people, why do I have to die? And why is resurrection from the dead so central to the gospel? Like, like couldn't you just write in a different story? And then when have you had questions around resurrection? We have people in our church who've buried babies. Who buried children. And the resurrection is like, it's, it's all they got. And then the Lord, why can't we get some type of assurance? Can we just at least get a, a little window that, that, that they're with you? Like, like these are all questions that we have about this subject. And so rather than read the Bible, wagging our fingers at the Corinthians saying, how could you? You're not a good Christian. How can you deny this? And why do you ask that question? Can we just take a moment and be honest that we will all be in situations when death feels strong and it feels like a tyrant and it feels unbreakable and we don't see our loved ones again. 
and we won't hear from them. And we face our own mortality, our own aging, and our own frailty. And then we have questions, right? And so I, I want to change the way we read the passage. Rather than wagging our fingers at them, I think the right way to read the passage is to say, Lord, I thank you that you're putting their questions and their doubts in the Bible because you're reminding me that it's okay to bring them to you. Yes, you're the God who is pleased with faith, but you're also the God who is pleased with Lord, I believe. Can you help my unbelief right here in a moment? Because I'm hurting and I'm confused and I'm walking by sight and not by faith. And the resurrection just does not look real. Those are the people that Paul is writing to. And that's good news. That you have a God who's big enough to handle your doubts and your questions. Now, what I love about this passage is that Paul does pivot and he does give them answers. Right. And so I, I actually think that, that the rest of the chapter, particularly from verse 36 all the way down uh, to the rest of the passage, that, 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 that what Paul is doing is answering some. He's answering these two questions. Now, which moves us to our second point. Here are some answers to their questions about the resurrection. Now, Paul does not answer all their questions, beloved, and God does not answer all of ours, but he accommodates us and answers some. And what he does answer, they're essential and important for us. And so I love that, that the way that Paul answers their questions is by appealing to creation. And this is important. There was a reason our call to worship was, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? You have put all things under the, his feet, all sheep, all oxen. And then you get the language of our text, all the beasts of the fields, all the birds of the heavens and all the fish of the sea. Right. You get Psalm 19, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. You get Jesus in Matthew chapter six. He's talking about anxiety. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink or wear. And then where does Jesus point? He points to the character of God, but particularly the character of God expressed in creation care. And so he says, consider the lilies of the field. And they're beautiful. And your father clothes them. Consider the birds of the heaven. They neither sow nor reap. And yet your father feeds them. You've never, ever seen a bird with a deep freezer hanging in a tree. Why? Because their father, the God of creation, feeds them their daily bread. And what Jesus says, oh, saints, when you're anxious, go take a walk. And go look at flowers and go look at birds. And then you preach to your soul. I am of so much more value to God than these animals and those flowers. If he is caring for them, 
will he not care for me? That's what Jesus does in Matthew. So when Paul is talking about resurrection, it should not surprise us that he says, let me direct your gaze to creation. You got these big questions about big things and let me point you to a tiny seed. That's almost parabolic, isn't it? And he says, look, right? Look at a seed. That, and, and notice the language, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So I don't even think Paul is saying what a farmer does. I think he's talking to people who might have had gardens in their backyard. And he says, look, beloved, when you go out and you plant that lettuce or you plant that cumin or you plant that tomato, when you hold that seed in your hand, he says, pay attention. Pay attention that that seed is quantifiably dead. Not dead in the sense that, that no life can come from it, but dead in the sense that it is no longer on a stalk. It is no longer in a tomato. It is, has been isolated. And now this seed that's in your hand will go into the ground. And then what will come out of the ground? Something that far exceeds the seed. A tomato with a body. A different kind of body, but there is continuity because it's coming from the seed, but there is discontinuity because it's different and it's better. It's a kernel and now it's a fruit. And notice what he says. He doesn't say that each seed has its body. He says each seed has a body given to it by God. Now, now we're getting into the wheelhouse of creation because it's reminding us of Genesis that when God says, let vegetation sprout, he didn't stop there with like, let lettuce heads come up or let tomatoes come up. He says, he also said, let tomatoes have seeds and let the seeds inside the tomatoes when they're taken out be planted and let them reproduce more seeds after its own kind. And who is the architect behind it all? God is. And so if you wanna know the source of resurrection, it's God. He's the source. In the same way that we're eating crops that we plant that come from seed right now, God, Paul is saying the same God who does that is going to do that to your body. It's as if Paul is saying, you eat resurrection every day. You see resurrection happening every time you walk outside. You chew resurrection at your meals. It's right under your noses and it's happening in creation. But he doesn't stop there in terms of the source. Then he says, okay, I'm going to answer your second question. What type of bodies will we have? And notice what he says. He says, not all. So the body has been chosen by God. So I think. The answer to the first question spills over into the second question. What's the source? God. Okay, we got that. But what kind of bodies? God has chosen the body. And notice what he says in verse 39, for not all flesh is the same. So now he's getting the kind of body, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Now that, th those words, humans, animals, birds, fish, you typically see them together in the Bible. It's usually humans, beasts of the field, birds, and fish. Like that's kind of, and so I think Paul's eye is actually back into Genesis, right? 
And I, here's what I think Paul is doing. We might think that flesh here means skin, but one scholar says Paul does not mean flesh as we might use it when we say he is all flesh and bones. Rather, he has in mind here the outward appearance, the outward dress, or the physical composition of animate beings. A human being is different from other animals. A bird is different from a fish. All have physical bodies that are clothed with appropriate flesh for their environment. All right, so he's not just talking about skin. He's not saying, hey, pull the hair of a dog and you see flesh there and, 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 and look at my flesh. That's not what he's doing. He's doing something bigger than that. He's actually saying, all right, I'm going to borrow language from taxonomy. Taxonomy is the classification of things. And so you, you have mammals and you have um, reptiles and you have, I think birds are like in the phylum aves. Like, I, I, did, I don't remember all this stuff, but you got it. Like kingdoms and classes and phylums. What Paul is doing here is giving us four different phylums. You have a human and then you have a bird and then you have fish and you have these beasts of the field, right? And if you look at taxonomy, they're classified differently. But, but, but here's the thing about God's engineering and his ingenuity. A bird is unique, not in its skin, but in its physical composition. He's given it wings. He's given it feathers. He's giving it hollow bones, right? He's given fish. They don't have lungs like we have. He's given them gills and he's given them scales. And then some of the beasts of the field, like they have certain teeth that is for the devouring of meat, or they have certain stomachs that do this weird stuff that enable them to get really, really big, and they only eat small little grass. But here's the kicker. The type of flesh that God gives each of them makes them suitable to live where they primarily dwell. The fish has gills. And it is suited to live in water. We don't have gills. And so we drown. We're meant to be land dwellers. And birds have hollow bones and feathers. And they're meant to fly. Right? And what Paul is actually saying, beloved, is that God is so amazingly creative that there are different phylums. And then God gives each entity in the phylum a body, a piece of flesh, a composition that enables it to dwell where he wants it to dwell. Now, that is so important. And I'm going to show you why in a minute. Moves us to the second point. There's also a difference in the degree of glory. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. And so when God made the heavens and the earth, we spend all of our time on the earth. 
But we have to remember there are heavenlies. There are galaxies and suns and moons and quasars and planets and solar systems and constellations. There are things that are just more glorious right here. We can come this close to this piece of wood right here. If you try to get that close to the sun, you're incinerated. We can breathe here on this earth, but if you try to go into space without a space suit, you die. And so there is glory in the heavenlies that far exceed what we see right here. And guess who gave it the glory? Guess who glory shines forth in it? It's your God in heaven. And what Paul wants to say, beloved, is this. The same God who by his power raises dead seed into something you eat. The same God who clothes animals with bodies they need to live where they are primarily to live. The same God who has a glory on the earth and it's manifested here, but he has things and quasars and galaxies out there that, that, that we can't ascend to. That same God is going to have a say in what happens to your body. You catch that? That is such good news. Who's going to raise our bodies? God is. Who's going to give us the body we need to, to live with him? God is. Who's going to give us glory that far exceeds what we have right now? God is. How do I know? Because he's been doing this from the beginning of time. So, so when I, when, I, when I prepare, like, I'm reading several books, and after I kind of get my, my outline going, my own thoughts, then I start to kind of do some deep dives. Okay, how are people thinking about this verse? And, and I came across just a, a reference to a C.S. Lewis book, The Great Divorce. And I had never read The Great Divorce. And I, I thought it was about a divorce. And it's not about a divorce. It's a response to some writer back in C.S. Lewis's day who was, was teaching this theology that heaven and hell will merge or something. And C.S. Lewis says, thank you for that thought. And I hope to meet you one day. But I'm going to take that thought and run it the other way. Heaven and hell are not converging. They're divorcing. They're different. Right? That, that's the premise of the book. But then in the book, he has this beautiful, illustrative language. He talks about these ghosts, these people who are mere humans who, who can't dwell in heaven. And he talks about people in heaven as, as um, oh God, solid people. Like that's the language he uses. And, and he talks, he has this image of this ghost who has this red lizard on his shoulder. And he, he wants to pet the lizard. The lizard talks to him. And he, he doesn't want a, the lizard dead. And an angel comes and says, I must kill that lizard because it's going to kill you. He says, but if you kill it, it's going to hurt me. He says, I never said it wasn't going to hurt, but you're really going to live. And then you discover that this angel kills this lizard, but the lizard was lust. And this man turns into a solid figure. And this lizard turns into this gallant horse who rides into the sunset. And you get this beautiful image of what God does to break us free of our idols. And we ride into the sunset. But the other imagery that, that blows my mind is his, his imagery of, of heaven. And these ghosts are, are mere humans. And he starts to talk about heaven being a, a more solid place. 
He says the blades of grass are like diamonds there. That a mere mortal walks on the blades of grass and it punctures them. And this is C.S. Lewis. I tried myself to pick one of the flowers and I, and I picked it and I, and I kept pulling and pulling and pulling and sweat was dripping everywhere and I could not do it. And he says, when I finally looked at my hands, my hands were bare because all my skin had been worn off. He says, when the ghosts walk, the dew in heaven does not even move. He said, then I saw a bird. I saw a bird fly. And when that bird who was suited for heaven flapped its wings, the grass blew. And then I saw the solid people. And when they walked in heaven, the grass bent and the dew burst. An aromatic sense went around them. You hear what he's saying? Where God is taking us family is a solid place. And these bodies we have right now cannot endure there. But God is going to give you a new body that is suited to live and dwell with him forever and ever and ever. And that's good news when you look in the mirror and see gray hair and sore knee and wrinkles and creases start to come and you're a little bit slower and you can't keep your balance. Like all of this stuff that we get like on this side to look in the mirror and to say, I'm getting a new body. Praise God. Fit for heaven. Praise God. Which moves us to our last point. But what's the guarantee? What's the certainty of your resurrection family? This is where I want us to remember who the audience is. The reason uh, we read Philippians is because Paul would say, oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death by any means possible to obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul would write, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. Guess, guess who read his letter? Not people saying that. There is no Corinthian saying, I'm ready to be poured out like a drink offering. Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He's not writing to confident people. He's writing to doubters. But look at my favorite verse in this section. Look at verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Who is the we there, saints? He didn't say I. He says, we, it's the saints, but I will, I'll, I'll push it a bit, further, a bit further. It's the people that he calls fools in verse 36. It's as if Paul is saying, you fools, you going to be resurrected, whether you believe it or not. Like that, that's the weight of what he's saying. So here's the question. Where is the certainty of our resurrection? If you think 
it's tied in your own apprehension of it. Right. If you think it's tied to you being, oh, Lord, I'm in a good season where I, I believe in the resurrection and I'm ready. If you think that the certainty of your resurrection is tied to your feelings, you're missing the good news of the gospel. What Paul actually says in the passage, you foolish people, you're going to be raised. If you have bowed the knee to Jesus, whether you feel like it, whether you make much of it, you're going to be raised. And that is such good news for people who doubt and lose hope. That God's promises to us are not dependent ultimately on our apprehension of them. They're rooted in something more solid, more stable, more sure. And it's our union with King Jesus. If you have bowed the knee to Jesus and acknowledge your own sin and guilt before a righteous God and acknowledge that there is no name given under heaven by which men and women must be saved. If you acknowledge that one came from the right hand of God to obey to the fullest extent of the law, and then that one also became your atoning sacrifice who takes away your guilt and shame, that one who could say it is finished on the cross when he died, that one who was raised in power because his sacrifice was accepted, that one who ascended and is at the right hand of the Father, if you have put your trust in Jesus, what Paul is saying, it doesn't matter if you begin to doubt. Now, we are to interrogate our doubts. I'm with it. But he's talking to doubting people and he's saying, oh, you fools, you're going to be resurrected. Bask in that for a minute. Now, what's the certainty? He says, just as you have been united to Adam. To that degree, you will be united to Jesus in his resurrection. I don't know about you, but like I've been I've been thinking about that. OK, to what degree am I in Adam? To the fullest and the uttermost. Right. I walk down the street. And I have this thought that I should not have. That's Adam. I go to a funeral and I see a dead body. That's Adam. I begin to blame and not take ownership for my own sin. That's Adam. I begin to watch my children fight against one another. That's Adam. I begin to have conflict in my marriage between my wife. That's Adam. I begin to see sin and suffering in the world. That's Adam. I begin to, begin to see hurricanes and, 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 and earthquakes. Guess what? That's creation groaning and waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. That's Adam. What Paul is saying is, beloved, to the degree just as you have been united to Adam, to that degree and with that certainty, you are now united by faith in Jesus. And what has happened to Jesus will, will happen to you. And that's why he employs this first man, second man language. Verse 21, for by a man came death, by a man comes a resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam, everyone dies. So in Christ, all shall be made alive. 
Thus, it is written in verse 45, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And that, that's his way of going back to Genesis where Adam was formed from the dust and he sat there as a dust created being until God breathed into him and then he became a living being. But that's not Jesus. Jesus is not the receiver of the breath of life. Jesus is the life giving spirit who breathes into us and gives us life just as Adam was a man from the dust. Jesus is the second Adam, the man from heaven. And just as we bear the image of Adam on the earth, he says, if you have put your faith in Jesus to that same degree, beloved, you will bear the image of the second Adam. This is a call, beloved, to make much of the finished work of Jesus. We are in him. And we will be made like him. And he will do it because God cannot be unfaithful to his people. Your resurrection is certain, not because of your feelings, but because of your faithful God. He will do it. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you for this glorious truth that you will raise us with a new body. And our minds can't even contain it. Even when we have the holy imagination, Lord, of thinking deeply about the things to come, we still have questions. Thank you that you answer them and you give us resurrection all around us day in and day out. We eat it and we see it and we smell it. And it is to remind us, Lord, that it is certain and it is coming. Help us, Lord, to respond accordingly as we'll talk about next week that we will be anchored and steadied and be a